Hello, Mage fans. This is Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined today by Terry Robinson, and we are going to have another episode of Tomes of Magic, where we talk about the tradition book Order of Hermes. Now, before we get to that, uh, I've heard that we have an announcement or two. Yeah, I've got a couple. First off, I'm great. I'm podcasting from my bunker in Philadelphia. I have a 45-watt industrial laser that I recently bought, and I'm doing a lot of stupid mage projects with it. And if you'd like to see them, go to discord.me slash magethepodcast, and you can see the acrylic copy of the Technocracy logo I did with the precepts of Damien listed inside of it. Also, the little piece of what I have that says, I have an effing laser. But we try and keep this podcast PG, so I won't tell you what it actually says. So go there. Go there to see it. Uh, in addition to that, Ascension's Landscape, my book on interpreting the world of Mage the Ascension, has gone silver. So thank you so much for everyone who's bought it. In addition, uh, one of the major revenue sources we have for the show is people who use our affiliate link to buy things on Storyteller Vault and DriveThruRPG. And I just happened to notice between yesterday and today, that leaped by $25. And since we get a... 5% cut. Thank you to the anonymous listener or listeners who bought $500 worth of drive through RPG stuff in the last day. It, it keeps us afloat and Adam's going to get a new boom stand at some point uh, powered by that. In addition, I will be doing a live play or an actual play for the Story Told podcast. Chaz Kellner is a writer for Exalted and was also on to discuss Exalted and is an all-around great person who does a wonderful podcast on all RPGs, not just one particular setting. His live play group asked me to run Mage the Ascension, and I'm going to. And that should start happening sometime in May with, I imagine, the episodes going out in June. So as Adam and I are releasing Mage Summer School, hopefully we will have a live play to go with it, and the audience will discover why I do a podcast and not normally an actual play. I am terrified because these people actually know the World of Darkness rules. How are you, Adam? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well, but I am very pleased that my uh, Technocracy and uh, Order of Hermes t-shirts arrived and enjoying those. Uh, Going to have a lot of fun wearing those and meeting other mage fans at conventions uh, this summer. Just got my Order of Hermes shirt just in time for the Order of Hermes episode. So uh, I'm trying to think of the movie where the, the one character tells another, you're wearing the shirt for the band you're going to see. Don't be that guy. But it's like, sometimes you want to be that guy. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, now I would like to uh, change gears and get into tonight's topic. Uh, Order of Hermes Tradition Book, it says right on the cover, it is Tradition Book 9. It is our final tradition book, and as Mage fans know, the first run of tradition books was uh, spaced throughout first and second edition together. So we're getting a little past the halfway mark for the second edition books, and so we get our, our final one for the Order of Hermes, which, of course, we're not done in alphabetical order. This book was out in 1997, and it was written by uh, Alan Varney, Nikki Rhea, Beth Fishy, Jackie Casada, uh, Mary Denning, Steve Long, with appendix and additional material by uh, Satiros Bricado, who uh, back then was publishing under the name of uh, Phil Bricado. My first impression was seeing all these different people and each one working on a different chapter. It's like I was concerned that this would be kind of disjointed or have kind of a choppy feel to it. But uh, as I read through it, I thought it worked together really well. Found a lot of good material in this book. So, I mean, with that many authors coming together for a joint project, I am really pleased to see that there was a firm hand on the tiller. So definitely uh, hats off to Satiros Bricado for, for getting that all together uh, in a very neat package. 
Uh, this book was also, I thought, a little innovative because Terry and I have been, of course, reading through all of the tradition books over uh, first run recently. And there, there's a kind of format that they follow. It's like, you know, this chapter, chapter one is going to be about history. You know, this chapter is going to be this many pages about external relations and this many pages for you know, the appendix and so on. And with this book, they just decided to break the mold. They said, look, we want to innovate. We want to give more pages to the appendix. We want to give less pages to external relations. Uh, we want to handle, you know, noteworthy mages from this group a little differently. And it paid off. I mean, it, it was a really great, great way to buck the trend and give us something that uh, we're, we're really enjoying. Before we get too far into details about uh, the Order of Hermes, who they are and what they're like, I would like to hear one of those walkthroughs of the book. Terry, can you oblige me? I am going to attempt to walk you through this book. So the introduction is a letter between a hermetic master and an adept who are reviewing a new edition of the horn book. So the frame narrative for this in the same way that the celestial chorus book was an update to the theophanies, the, this is an update to the horn book, which is a learner or Enchiridion for new hermetics. And the idea is the proper horn book is massive. And one of my favorite lines is one of the reading characters says, I confess that after page 2,500, I began skimming. If I am reading a book like a rules book and it has more than two pages of like rotes or gifts or discipline, you can almost audibly hear the little voice in my head going blah, 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 blah. As I scroll through, see if there are any interesting titles and check out the art before I get back to the rest of the book. And it is someone saying, hey, I think this book could use some footnotes. And the Order of Hermes tradition book is a composition made of those footnotes. The introduction ends with the Glossarium Hermeticum, which is a list of all the Latin and hermetic -y terms that are used. And I must confess, the entire time I read these terms, it super sounded like Harry Potter so it's the correspondence is referred to as conjunctio and I can just picture Ronald Weasley pointing a wand and saying that and it being like mens materia and so on. So I found it super hard to keep any of the spheres. Harry straight. Potter ruined Latin for us. Yep. <laughs> yep. I thought the emphasis they were trying to put on the pride and secrecy of the order went a little too far. But um, I, I guess it is hard to dial that just perfect. But uh, yeah, tell me, tell us about chapter one. It's one of those things where to make sure that everyone gets it, you almost of necessity have to overdo it. So I understand why that can be hard to dial in. And footnote one, the chronological precus or whatever it is, because I do not know Latin. We get what I'm going to refer to as the asshole history of magic. This is the chronological listing of why the Order of Hermes is cooler than everyone else. They're going to beat you up and steal your girlfriend and take your skateboard and just roll off into the sunset. And it begins with saying a wonderful contradiction where it's like human magic is at least as old as spoken language, but we're hermetics. So we don't care about it until anyone wrote it down. So that was about 2,500 years ago. So we're going to start 2,500 BCE. So we're going to start there. And it's like, Hmm, right off the bat, they're like, yeah, humans have been doing magic forever, but until you wrote it down, it wasn't cool. And that's when hermetics came around. So we're going to say that was the start of magic. And I'm like, <clears throat> write it down or it didn't happen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Show me receipts. And we get, a story that starts around 2500 before the Common Era, BCE. This was the first book I had read that used BCE, CE notation, and I used it in high school, and I thought I was being a rebel at the time. And then all my teachers are like, 
oh no, just about everyone in academia uses that. And I'm like, darn it, Order of Hermes, you have led me astray again. But it, it opens with the story of a husband and wife pair from Phoenicia and Egypt who are the first magical practitioners that eventually become the entity referred to as Thoth, the Egyptian god of learning, and to the Greeks as the thrice great Hermes. And they lead off with a thing that goes, you don't know who these people are because you've been gotten to by the New World Order, those jackasses. We're so great. An entire convention had to wipe these two people from history so we wouldn't get first credit. And then the history rolls forward. And it basically goes through a list of how everyone in the ancient world was an effing mage. Solomon, first archmaster of spirit. Pythagoras, mortal? Nope, he was a mage too. Alexander of Macedonia, called the great because he imposed his will, but also because he was initiated into a cult of the fusion of Greek and Egyptian cultures, which eventually got merged with Persian, Gnostic, and Kabbalistic beliefs that created hermetic tradition. So they only care about Alexander of Macedonia because they created the territory that combined these things together. King Gingis, the Thothian cult being at its height, they called Jesus a magician which I think is uh, is kind of bold. They talk about how Simon Magus, the, the Sumerian, was the last of the important Egyptian Thothian cult members and how he got uh, slandered in the Bible because everyone's like, this guy is too cool. We need to, we need to make sure that something bad happens to him. Otherwise, the hermetics are going to be seen as being too cool. Apollonius of Tirana, also a mage. We just get several millennia where everyone of note who did anything notable was probably a mage, which is a bit much for me. But when we start getting into the Middle Ages, we start seeing how the tradition has changed. In 731, Trianoma, a Gnostic and Mercuric mage in Westphalia, was standing atop the Burmese Alps and foresees the collapse of the Hermetic Way. And to foresaw this fate, she wanders Europe seeking other mages and eventually meets Bonisagus, and they work together. They create the Parma Magica, this awesome shield spell, and they walk around Europe being like, yo, we should make a thing. And in 767, they made a thing. The 12 founding Magi adopt the Code of Hermes in a small Frankish settlement in a place whose name I can't pronounce, and they are known as the Primi. Another throwaway line occurs in 772 where they say, after a whole bunch of ambushes and murders, they invent Curdamain as a way of settling disputes. Because apparently before that, ambushes and murders is how you solve problems. In 848, Tremere, the youngest and weakest of the Hermetic founders, attempts a takeover of all the houses, but is prevented by mysterious mages from somewhere. And they warn all the other houses, just you wait, that's going to come back and be super important. In 876, they retake over Duizetep from the Nefandi, and it becomes a, a, a center of learning. It moved around a bunch of times. It was briefly an extinct volcano. It was briefly in Thailand. And that just shows you how nuts magic was back then. Fast forwarding another two centuries, we have the Schism War, which is this internal war within the Order of Hermes around 1003 to 1012, where House Tremere and Flambeau, with the sanction of House Quasitor, destroy the Druidic House Diadne, saying that they had been committing human sacrifices. But they never actually tell you if they were indeed committing human sacrifices. Uh, 1022, Tremere kills and experiments on an ancient Zemisi vampire, develops a potion to turn him into a vampire, and not until like 180 years later did anyone pick up that these people were not actually mages anymore. So for 180 years, they were able to like fake their way through not having true magic, which I just think is 
kind kind of nuts. And then we kind of get to a time known as the dwindling. So starting after the Solificati disband in 1471, the Order of Hermes kind of falls to infighting. And once again, the book kind of claims that anyone who is anyone during the 1415 and 1600s was probably a mage. John Dee, the noted the noted occultist for Elizabeth I, was a mage. Johannes Faust was a wonder worker and minor mage and part of House Titleist. Uh, Paracelsus was also a mage. Oliver Cromwell was a member of the Order of Reason or was a puppet of the Order of Reason. And it's just kind of this very conspiratorial history of the Order of Hermes. Joan of Vark was apparently an orphan, and yeah. The next key set of dates we have is in the 1800s, a modern revival for the Order of Hermes starts, which is to say sleeper culture comes back to the roots that the Hermetics always found interesting. So Egyptian thought, Greek thought, Kabbalistic thought, Persian thought, anything that wasn't nailed down that seemed super old and sacred that you could jam together, do a bunch of snuff at a dinner party, and then talk about in the dark, and then maybe like touch other people under a felt robe or something was was super in vogue. And again, it goes through a list of people that happen to be mage. Apparently, a friend of Abraham Lincoln started a secret mage society, the brothers of Eulis. Yeah, that's... That leads us to kind of a, a modern view, and they present the the fundamental question that the tradition has is, we are the group that has done great things, and we have exceptional power, and we have a proven ability to lead. But the problem that we run into is our goal is to acquire power so we have the ability to impose our will on the world, which allows us to become enlightened. If we do not properly balance power with that quest to enlightenment, bad things will happen. And the question becomes, do we have the ability to one, regain our power, and then two, to apply that in the appropriate direction? That was a very messy chronology, but that's because it is dense with dates in the Middle Ages that I really don't care about. I think one of my favorite little lines they mention, they agreed on using a hermetic model, but for reasons we don't fully understand and flabbergast us to this day, we were not appointed the obvious head of the Council of the Nine Mystic Traditions and were just given the severe forces. But we are the most humble of any tradition, so we are okay about it and we have never brought it up since except for all the time. So I thought they did a good job of bringing it together. So, so do you have any thoughts on my, my snarky chronology? <laughs> Yeah, a lot of interesting material to draw on. And of course, Ars Magica, the role-playing game, uh, which is in its fifth edition now, is something we're going to be mentioning a number of times uh, during the podcast tonight, because there's a lot of material in this book that is drawn from Ars Magica. And I, and I think that's a lot of fun. A lot of Ars Magica history, and you just kind of get pulled in. But uh, yeah, I think that's fun. and I like to see it. Uh, one thing that I thought was, was interesting was I went back and looked at the uh, basic two-page information on Order of Hermes from the first edition core book and the second edition core book and compared it with what I was finding here. And I, I just thought it was kind of interesting that when the Order of Hermes started out in first edition, it said that they existed before the Middle Ages, you know, public facing Order of Hermes. And so the, the Middle Ages Order of Hermes from Ars Magica was an experiment of the true Order of Hermes. And then when that experiment failed hundreds of years later, the Order of Hermes kind of, you know, was very upset about it. But in second edition, it consistently says that the beginning of the Middle Ages public-facing Order of Hermes was the beginning of the Order of Hermes. So that was that was, that was quite a change. Um, let's uh, move on to chapter two and see what we have there. 
And there were a few dates also that didn't quite line up within the the timeline section. Like one book lists the Ali Batini deserting the Council of the Nine in 1922, and Horizon Stronghold of Hope listed as 1932. Uh, Additionally, the Nafandi are listed here as being banned by uh, two: uh, one, a member of House Titulus, and a number of and a member of House Bonnie Sages. Where elsewhere, it's listed as having been Porthos. But yeah, there's at this point, Mage has a lot of history and not everything is going to quite line up. So footnote two, conjunctiones domestic, footnote two, we get a introduction into what it is like to be hermetic. And I will summarize it as it sucks. Oh my God. It's so hard. Like we talked about the sons of the ether where it's like, do you want to join our group? Here's a book. It contains one challenging idea. If you can talk to us about that book, you can be my apprentice. And if that doesn't kill you, you get a jetpack. And everyone's like, oh man, if that doesn't kill me, I get a jetpack. I still think the Copaloe win where you have two days of very aggressive back massages. And if you can get through that, you become a member of the Copaloe. Yeah, um, I wrote them, but I didn't hear back. Yeah. <laughs> I think you may be outside their core demographic, but I appreciate <laughs> you you going for being the diversity hire. Um, so it goes through the life of an apprentice where you have to learn English, Greek, Arabic, a different kind of Greek, Latin, a third kind of Greek, Coptic, and yet more Greek. And it starts with an awakening. And they mention that very few mortals, perhaps one in five million, have the potential to become mages. And if you take that one in five million and run with it, there are 1,200 mages on the face of the planet. That is not a lot of mages. I have reinterpreted that as one in five million people has the ability to become a hermetic. And that makes way more sense. So awakening is never a simple matter for a hermetic, their concern is if someone awakens without guidance, then they will fall to madness and not be able to grasp the ever-shifting realities. So they are very aware of the fact that in a moment of epiphany, that if someone is not there to shepherd you through, you may fall or become a marauder or in some other way, fall out of sync with reality and not be able to be a participant in the Ascension conflict. They recruit using personnel division and house fortunae. They keep their eye on uh, promising students from academia and a number of other fields. And that that is something that is listed in the houses section. Once you are screened, the idea is to sift out the unstable and the untrustworthy, who could prove to be a a grave danger to the order. The idea is we're going to teach you some super intense stuff and we don't want you to go using it wrong. When you're staring down an umbral lord, we want someone who's not going to crack. And the first degree is is becoming a neophyte, where you more or less learn basic linear magic, where the goal is to show you that there are methods to modify reality, and if you follow them strictly, you can create some sort of effect. Their second degree, Zelator, is the point at which you have evolved beyond this formulaic learning, and after you've mastered a dozen languages, you have the ability to... Uh, start experimenting with true magic. Maybe you start binding small umbrood or doing uh, work with rare tomes. You've evolved beyond Goetia, the just the rote application of understanding to uh, theurgia, to understanding that there is kind of a divine power that you have that you can manipulate. This whole process takes somewhere between two and six years. Along the way, you will be asked to challenge your own belief. One of the things they bring up 
up is the idea of antinomianism, that it is important to challenge your own beliefs by doing things that you wouldn't do. So one of the examples they give is if you have a book that you particularly like, a thing you can do for personal growth is to destroy that book and to know what it is like to go through that experience, to assess your values from another angle and see if they hold up to scrutiny. This is also the level at which apprentices start being sent on missions. The final degree that you have before you're initiated is you become a a practicus. This is the point at which you have the ability to start doing true magic and you gain access to some sort of word, which is going to, maybe in a moment of epiphany, maybe based on the direction your life has gone, going to be the focus of your hermetic practice. And at some point along the way, you will face some sort of final initiation, some sort of final trial. And if you pass it, you get to go through a trimutal of initiation, where your mentor a member of House Quasitor, and at least one other member of the initiating house is going to walk you through the five steps. The first is a declaration. This person is a hermetic. Then an oath. This person is a hermetic, and they're going to follow all of our rules. And if not, we're going to come after them and call them a dick. And then the next thing is you get a name. And names with the hermetics are very complicated. And you'll be like, this is Jim. That was his old name. His shadow name is now Jimicus. And in addition to that, you get a true name, which is going to be this extended thing that only you and your mentor share. I find it interesting that it is something that your mentor knows that doesn't really come up anymore. And it's like, let this be known that this is Jimicus, Benny House Keg Standards. True name. Woo! Uh, And in addition to that, you get a sigil, which is a symbol of your member, which is a wand, because this is totally not just Harry Potter. And finally, a declaration of a vector, which is kind of what you plan on doing once you're out in the world. And whenever this comes up, I just picture the Mary Tyler Moore scene of she's gonna make it after all, because I can take nothing seriously in Mage. And that's going to be going through my head. All <laughs> I saw sorry. that too. <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes on to the fun things that you can do once you're a member. Uh, the first thing you can do is participate in rabid power politicking. <laughs> like that's the first thing, like you're in, you can now deal with the life and death politics of people who are seven centuries old and are on the teetering on the brink of madness. You can gain knowledge. So how about that? In addition to that, you can start taking an apprentice when you become an adept. You can find a familiar. You can establish your sanctum. You can challenge others in curtamen, 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 curtain, rod, main, mainlining, heroin, and a number of other things. You may, I like that it lists Twilight as one of the experiences you have, where it's like, in addition to all the other benefits of being a hermetic, you can go crazy. Um, and they also go through a number of awards and recognitions that the group has, one of which is a second initiation. When you become an adept or master, you can be uh, you can be welcomed into kind of this hermetic inner circle that they never really talk about again. So I don't think it's very important to go through that. The next section we have within that chapter is hermetic law, which is the code of Hermes. It is all the things that you are promising to do. Uh, You will promise to take on apprentices. You are not going to peep on other people using mind magic and so on. You're going to uphold all that it is to be a hermetic. You're going to be most excellent to one another, blah, blah, blah. And then it goes through the, the high crimes and low crimes that the organization has and how they deal with that. That in general, the goal is to, if you do something wrong, is to make the other person whole and then very publicly say you're sorry. It goes through the the laws 
of the organization and how they are imposed, how the quasitors work, how the primus is chosen, and then also that the organization itself is generally led by a whole bunch of committees. Uh, we get personnel, procurement, logistics, and we don't really get a good descriptor of what they are, but it does mention that as a low-level member, you may be called upon by any of these committees to go and do something. And that's kind of the crash course we get in the Order of Hermes organization, except for the houses. What'd you think of it, Adam? Uh, I, I enjoyed the chapter. I really liked the part where it talked about the uh, the three stages of apprenticeship. That can be fun for players, but I think it's really fun for storytellers because, again, um, a lot of storytellers want to portray a chantry to visiting players and make it interesting, and, and that's a, a very helpful tool. Uh, I liked the idea of uh, every hermetic mage developing a personal word, like one word that has multiple levels of meaning for themselves and their future career and their future life. I thought that that's such a great role-playing tool to put in the hands of players. Um, really enjoyed that. Uh, and also the the mystical view of quiet, which they, they call twilight, which is the word for it in Ars Magica, by the way. It, it, it was interesting to see that. I'm, I'm not, I'd have to ponder that more just to see how I, I would really deal with that. But, uh, you know, of course, quiet is this thing that is like a special kind of insanity that only mages can experience. And most mages of all factions see that as, as um, you know, a frightening thing and uh, something to definitely avoid. But here we have the hermetics saying, no, you can gain insight from this. So this can be a good thing. However, there's a lot of people who never come out again and it's really awful, but it can be good. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I feel like that's like when people look at the euthanatos and the euthanatos are like, yeah, death can be a great learning opportunity. And they're like, Twilight, uh, Porthos has entered Twilight 12 times. How bad could it possibly be? I really feel like they're trying to downplay it or like soft pedal it in the eyes of everyone uh, else. It's like some of the people who were near Porthos didn't survive it, but you know, he gained insight. Well, that, <laughs> he did. okay. The insight was that his apprentice was highly flammable. Uh, well, moving on to uh, uh, footnote three, and that is the Houses of Hermes. In most of these tradition books, they take maybe maybe a page, maybe a page and a half, and they say these are the different uh, subgroups or factions within the tradition. Uh, some mages belong to them, some mages don't. Now, Order of Hermes is different. Uh, instead of a page and a half, we get uh, 18 pages. But it's a great 18 pages. I uh -huh. like what you're giving. In the Order of Hermes, you are going to be in one of the houses, and uh, if a player has, has trouble choosing, then uh, they, they've got a default option, which works well. But uh, I, I just thought it was fun that they also took the uh, notable personalities of this tradition, which is usually, I don't know, page two, maybe three pages at the back of the book. And instead, they rolled it into the last little part of every two-page spread for a house. And so we get four notable people for every house. So like nine houses, nine times four, that's a lot of notable people. But they, they boil it down to just a few sentences to give you like what is really, really interesting about this person. And so like as a storyteller picking through, it's like, I love this. There's so many ideas here. There's so many NPCs I can mention during a game. I, but let's go through the houses of Hermes. We start off with the traditional houses. These were houses that existed in the Ars Magica game and were around since the Middle Ages, and they are still around today. We have Bonasagus or Bonasagus. These are the scholars and theorists, few in number, but still producing important research. One cabal lives in Doisetep and organizes efforts against the technocracy. This cabal is known for its magical connections and diplomacy. Uh, other members of the house are mostly scattered and uh, reclusive and very involved in research. Uh, the function of House Bonasagus is 
research. That's what it does for the order of Hermes as a whole. Next, we have Ex Miscellanea. Since the Middle Ages, a grouping of disparate styles and practices, uh, some Batini refugees are here. Most of the house is remnants of four older houses that lost strength over the centuries. We have Kriyaman, the mystic's mystic. These mages tattoo their bodies, speak in riddles, and ponder enigmas. Yarbaton, these are more urbane wizards that value ties with sleeper society and are known for valuing arts and philosophy. We have Miranita, uh, mages who focus on magic colored by fey influence and relationships with true fey and changelings. And we have uh, Verdidius, specialists in creating wonders. Ex Miscellanea has no acknowledged function, but unofficially, I'd say its function for the Order of Hermes is innovation. Next, we have Flambeau, experts in forces and combat magic, known for being direct, but in recent years, they've learned to be patient. Their function for the Order is defense. We have House Quasitor, uh, judges for the Order. They settle all disputes and interpret the Code of Hermes. Their function, of course, is justice. We have House Titleists. They believe overcoming countless challenges hones the will and perfects the soul. Generals in the conflict with the technocracy, and their function is strategy. Now we have four new houses. Uh, these were never mentioned in Ars Magica, and they came into existence in, in more recent times. We have Fortune, known for specializing in probability and mathematics, both mundane they maintain ties with virtual adepts and have many Kabbalah experts. Uh, they are also uh, much more active in uh, visiting sleeper society and spending time around sleepers. And their function for the order is recruiting. We have Janissary. This new and small house was de has developed very close ties with House Quasitor and travel about exposing disloyal hermetics. Uh, multiple books for Mage already published portray them as ruthless schemers. Their function is internal security. We have House uh, Shea, or House Shea, I've always said Shea, uh, a mostly female group that has strong ties to ancient Egyptian culture and magic. They are experts in ancient languages and translating written documents. They are secretive even by hermetic standards, and their function for the order is historians. And we round it out with Thig, a new and small house that works to stay connected with the Janissaries. They are insecure and mainly young mages who follow this month's cool leader. They are known for being experts with computer technology, but have a more arcane bent than the virtual adepts. And what they do for the Order is reconnaissance. And so that is nine houses of Hermes. And of course, in the old Ars Magica game, there were 12 houses of Hermes, but a number of those... Uh, folded, and then I heard that one went rogue, House Tremere, but uh, I'm sure you've never heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to note that I pronounce literally every house in Ex Miscellanea different than you, and this is part <laughs> of why I enjoy doing the show. <laughs> so I say uh, Creamon, Gerbaton, uh, Marinita, and Verditious. And chances You're probably are, right on Verditious. Chances are, we're both wrong, and that's the glory of mage. Everyone gets to be wrong <laughs> together. The thing I liked about this was we got like thirty-six characters, and only like one or two of them actually existed as historical humans, which is a lovely departure from some of the previous books. And it gives you a bunch of options. Like in almost every other tradition, I don't feel like you have to necessarily answer the question of who your faction is. You could just be like, and you don't really need to be like, oh, I'm a tender of the roots or I'm a leaf cutter or whatever the terms were. I mean, in... The Order of Hermes, the idea that it is this collection of houses is so vital that this is a important part of character creation. And the important part to recognize is House Fortunae is 
the best. And I may at one point try to have recreated the suit that the Fortune Eye guy has. Yeah, like you, I found it. I found it fascinating. And yeah, and every two-page spread had a, a big illustration for a, a typical mm-hmm. unnamed member, and I, I just love the illustration. Like flipping through it, it's like th- this is so cool. This gets me into it. I've got a Ars Magica book that gives a more more simple woodcut kind of um, logo or image uh, for each of the houses, and it was interesting to see those like fancied up and, and recreated and mm-hmm. put in the shields in this book. So it's like the links. Oh, interesting. Games. There's so many links, and they're so fun to see. The next one we have is a short chapter, footnote four, which is conjunctivitis externity. Yeah, footnote four. I am purposefully mispronouncing at this point because I just want to lean into it. And we get how the Order of Hermes interfaces with everyone else. And the I will summarize their relationships with the rest of the Council of the Nine Mystic Traditions as they get along with them poorly. They talk about how... Yeah, we have good reason to be proud. We remember when the Celestial Chorus was completely treacherous during the Inquisition, and that wasn't us. Sure, the Verbena made fun of us, and the Cultists of Ecstasy were useless, and they produced Crowley, who is obviously a Nefondi, so I don't know why anyone would have a problem with us. But we made some oopsies, like when we told the Dream Speakers, playing in the dirt with spirit does not make one a mage. And that was probably a mistake. And they also talk about how they view the virtual adepts and the Sons of Ether as having the stink of the technocracy. So one of the interesting things here was it is almost a meta commentary in that in the previous books, we got the stereotypes each group had about the other groups. But in this book, it is someone saying our stereotypes are too simplistic and we need to work on that. And maybe if we do, people will stop thinking that we're jerks and they'll recognize how we're better than them. So even even in the hermetics talking about personal growth, they're kind of being asswads about it. And I loved it. It was so, in some cases it was too much, but in other cases it was super well done. They talk about their relationship with the technocratic union, how they hate them, how they took all their cool stuff. And then they kind of give up the goat when they're like, we used to be in charge and things kind of sucked, but we were in charge. And then they took over and peasants life got better, but we weren't in charge anymore. So we don't like the order. And you're like, wow, that's real. <laughs> really read into that one. Uh, how they hate all vampires, more or less. Yet some people are like, I don't see what's wrong with the Tremere. They used to be hermetics. How bad could they be? And like, oh, buddy, this is not, <laughs> this did not turn out well for you before. They talk about how they get along with Bastet because who doesn't like were tigers? But to avoid the Garou because they will kill you, I think is the technical term that they use. Uh, they talk about their relationship with the Umbrood that other people are like, other people call them gods, demons, and angels and spirits. We call them our bitches. They didn't actually say that, but they said because of our mastery of Anakian that they are able to interface with the Umbrood in a way that few other traditions are able to do. They also talk about how the Arcanum is a group they deal with sometimes, and sometimes they'll slip them a little bit of information or nudge them onto the right path, but how they're not a big fan of the society of Leopold, the group that like hunts vampires and uh, was part of the Inquisition, I think. They also talk about sleepers and how if we're going to get everyone to participate and how awesome we are, I guess we need to help the sleepers too. And uh, yeah, so it, it's a it's a very short chapter. It's chock full of stereotypes and assumptions. And in some cases, though, they, they even rece- reflect upon it. Do you have any thoughts about footnote four? It was a short chapter, but uh, I think in many of the tradition books, this chapter is, is longer than it needs to be. So I, yeah. I think this was a more compact package, and I, I think it was a good uh, good call. Um, there was no mention of mummies. It's like, come yeah. on. <laughs> the Order of Hermes, they would be like, they would be like saying something about them. It's like, I, I see 
possibility for at least friendly thoughts between the two. And it's like, they're not even mentioned. It's like, ah, oh, come on. If any uh, tradition in the Council of Nine is going to even like mention mummies, like you'd think it'd be these guys. But So I was a little disappointed, but it was a good one. Next, we move to the appendix. Tell me about it, Terry. I love the appendix. They refer to the fairies as the fragile ones, which to me is such a burn. Like if someone referred to my like oh, yeah. to my supernatural spirits as a supernatural group as like the fragile ones, I'd be like, hey, buddy, we have feelings too. And they'd be like, that's why we call you fragile ones, burn. That was not phrase. I was trying to understand that. <laughs> I understand why they put it that way. And, and it makes sense in a modern world, chock full of banality, that it's hard for them to last long. And it's like, they're kind of weird. Better leave them to marry Anita. And you're like, you're trying to infer here. And then we get to what is an amazing chapter, where it is Ars Magica et Miscellanea, which may actually be how it's pronounced uh, as part of the appendix. I think that's how that word is pronounced. And they talk about how a hermetic does magic. And they talk about the pyramid of thought, that at the base of it, you have the realm of faith and emotions, where reality is a construct, but the questions of who are we and what do we want and what do our senses get come in that basic level. And then above that, you have the Aristotelian area of reason. And at the beginning of the modern age, philosopher scientists replaced basic sensory empiricism with a notion of progress, that reason alone can perfect humanity and that science can perfect all things. But the hermetics say that the power of reason is great and can do great things, but we have more work to do. And beyond the realm of reason is the idea of truth or noesis called the above in the thrice great Hermes maxims, which is at the slender top of the pyramid are the people, aka the order of Hermes, who are able to, while striving out of love of themselves and humanity, are literally able to pluck ideas from the apex of this pyramid and just find pure truth without having to go through feeling or reason to get there. And that they can then bring that back to every Everyone else. And in one s- single sentence, that shows both what their version of ascension is to create the great city of Pymander, where human will is unleashed and everyone gets to live to their fullest potential. But also, we have the best way to do it, and we need to show everyone else how to do it. So all of the tradition books we've gotten so far have some sort of argument within them, like the force of modernity that the tradition is trying to enact, but also the internal thing that is holding them back. And this is where it is in hermetic thought, the idea that we we are capable of doing great things and we want the world to be able to do it, but we are going to be the ones to show them how to do it and we have the right way of doing it. And that kind of mix of arrogance and determination, I feel is a great summary of the tradition and kind of an important part when actually presenting it. They go through the benefits of being a member of the order, and they kind of break those up into being four key things. The first is the usage of craft names, shadow names, and true names. And the idea is that a true name conceals the identity of the person who has it, that you have a birth name that you were given at birth, a a craft name that you got upon joining the order, a shadow name, which also lists your, your membership, what house you're a part of. Uh, as well as major accomplishments, and beyond that, a true name, which contains some sort of information fundamentally about who you are. And if someone doesn't have access to their true name, 
in a certain sense, they can never truly know you. And in terms of the correspondence range chart that is presented in the 2E core book, they can never be that close connection. But if using mind magic or some other method, they're able to learn your true name, they can always treat you as if they are very familiar or close by or have minus two difficulty or add two dice to your counter magic. And it really systematizes it. It's part of this late second edition idea that each tradition should have a thing that they do. They talk about how only dream speakers can physically walk into the dream time. And here, one of the benefits they give is this idea of craft names, shadow names, and true names, and its ability to separate you from others to prevent other people's magics from working. In addition to that, they talk about Nakian, who is a language that is used by uh, the High Umbrud and is spoken by elementals. And it was... Uh, codified by Hypatia and John D figured out the syntax and each sentence can be read in a couple of different ways. But by gaining this, you have the ability to talk directly with spirits and you can use a complementary role of intelligence plus Enochian to simplify a ritual that may involve communicating or commanding them. We also get the Umbrood Protocols, which is the idea that long ago, the Order of Hermes struck these agreements with a whole bunch of very powerful Umbrood and that to this day, their descendants or members of their house, that is the Umbrood's house, will still follow these agreements. And by invoking these and addressing them appropriately and by doing the right things, they can force a spirit to do it. They mention that this is actually just kind of a courtesy that the spirits give to hermetics, that they don't actually gain true power until you have four dots of spirit to compel them. But again, it's an advantage that you get, that you know the right people to call, you know what the right uh, pentacles to draw are, and you know how to invoke someone safely. And they also talk about since there isn't a bunch of example characters, instead they say, hey, if you're a hermetic, here are some abilities, backgrounds, merits, and flaws that you may want to have. And then they give you a bunch of sample characters in the form of single paragraph write-ups of what a character does, where they maybe came from, and what their word is. And I thought that was a, an interesting way of substituting for the fact that they're not giving you character templates. And then the final part of this chapter is we get a bunch of focuses. And what I like about these focuses is they are rich and specific. So for instance, for the instruments listed for Ars Essentia, so forces, gilded iron keys, sometimes magnetized, the elements, magnets, fire, ice, prisms, names of air and fire, spirits, pentacles, or the number eight. And it gives you a bunch of options, and I super like that. And then the final part we get are a whole bunch of rotes, and they are very flavorful. They walk you through the ritual of forming it. You learn how to form a Parma Magica. You learn how the ability to, to compel activity from an elemental can be done, how to shoot lightning through a wall which I thought was kind of cool. They give you phlogiston manipulation, which gives you the ability to make something fireproof or to reconstitute something that is burned down. Uh, and we get the coolest of all abilities, which is the opportunity to have music automatically play when you walk into a room using the time lock effect. Time for forces too. And then finally, some suggested reading. This was a very good chapter. And this was, for me, one of the first times in the mage books where I thought this miscellaneous chapter really hit on all cylinders, outlining both a cosmology and an appropriate paradigm. This is the way a hermetic sees the world work. And then saying, these are the practices that they are going to do. And these are the implements they're going to do with it. And then giving a whole bunch of flavorful rotes. And then closing out with suggested reading. What did you think about the appendix? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that they gave a larger page count uh, to this appendix than they do in most tradition books because they used it well. And I liked the uh, templates. I liked, you know, for an average member of the Order of Hermes or, you know, from different walks of life, these, this is what they would be like. This is what their word is. That was really cool. Very helpful to players trying to figure out where they might uh, fit into the or- Order of Hermes. One thing that was a little weak for me was at the beginning of the chapter, they, they give their justification for why they study the sphere of forces because really it's the key to all the other spheres and they have like a paragraph or two about that I was reading it's like yeah this comes across as kind of artificial a lot of uh, traditions when you look at the the game of mage uh, you can see the how they they totally fit like for example the verbena and the life sphere it's like yeah okay this one fits and euthanatos and the entropy sphere it's like okay that that's a natural and you come to say the sons of ether or the order of hermes and it's like well you know I could I could see him with this sphere that sphere or the other sphere and um, you know they had to assign one to each for the for the game Order, but putting that aside, there, there was so much good stuff in here. The 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 rotes. I mean, I'm I'm used to seeing some rotes at the back that would be kind of typical for this tradition. But I was reading these rotes, and it's like, well, I'm, these are really interesting. I like how they describe how you know the ritual implements you would use and the things you would do to get this rote started, and then what you can do with it, and and how they tie into the history of the Order of Hermes. And it's like, oh, here's the Parma Magica. You can do it too. Here's like a a more modern version of it. It's like. Oh, this is this is so much fun. This is really a, a lot of fun. Like you said, firing on all cylinders. It was a really great appendix, and I, I love the hermet. Oh, the the hermetic degrees, like one through eight or one through nine or something. I, I thought that was a very useful role playing tool for players and for storytellers setting up NPCs in a chantry. It's like that is just a wonderful tool to be able to use. I loved the hermetic degrees. It's interesting because my initial thought when I read it was something like, oh man, these rotes are really hard to do. Why would I ever want to be a hermetic? And then I more or less changed over time to thinking, actually, this is probably the degree of specificity that all rotes should have in in being a rote and just that this is one of the few books that goes into the uh, to do this you need the skin of a salamander or alternatively you need something that has been burned by a fire elemental to create this special uh, phosphorescent match to do this effect so that is something where over time my, my views on it have certainly changed and I, I also liked not getting character sheets I think it's one of those things where it chews up a lot of page because the description in the image can be sometimes useful, but that character sheet takes up a whole darn page as opposed Mm -hmm. to normally when we get an NPC or something, it's maybe a quarter of a page or less. So I feel like it left more room for more good stuff. Yeah. The format, the formatting for this book was, was very intelligently done and we really get a, a noticeable benefit from it. There was a special key on one page and I've heard you've got the translation. Included in this is the the Phoenix Prophecy. We're on pages 6, 17, and 27. There are a whole bunch of alchemical symbols. This is something that was created by Eileen E. Miles uh, as she was doing the layout and typeface portion. And it is, I think, one of the longest... Uh, prophecies in mage in that it predicts forward the most in specificity and again this is written in 1997 this is years before the year of revelation is going to hit and and some seven years before we finally get the ascension book and the prophecy is be aware that the time for the unveiling of the 10th sphere is near the ali batin hold the key and then later it says the age of earth draws to a close age of fire is at hand when the works of man shall be cast in ruins and then on page 27 if you solve the cipher again you get the time of the phoenix is upon us it rises from the ashes so shall we emerge from the shadow of science and the callback to the ali batin 
returning and a few other bits are ultimately not resolved until well later. So if you go through, you can you can read it and, and resolve it. It is also published as a fixed version in the opening of the deluxe edition of Laws of Ascension, the LARP book for Mage. So that is where I additionally originally saw it and I'm like, oh, this is neat. I wonder where this is from. And then Ian A. Watson pointed out to me like, oh, it's a simple substitution cipher in the Order of Hermes book. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally did that. I knew that. So I thought that was a, a neat bit and I wish there were more secret codes in the mage books. White Wolf, if you're listening, I want I want more books with secret messages in them and so, the decoder rings that we could buy exactly to with it. <laughs> i bought a whole bunch of box of golden grams i want that secret decoder ring yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that was really cool uh, i i gotta admit I, I i missed that the first time i read the book i thought it was just here's some alchemical symbols and aren't they cool it's like no it was a message you idiot yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it really jumps out for you because one of my criticisms of this book is i usually read the pdfs uh, if it is something where I'm trying to read it on a deadline because I'm generally reading on my lunch break at work and so on. And the PDF scan of this is not particularly high quality. A lot of those symbols in the background bleed through a lot and it can be somewhat hard to read. So if those kind of things get in your way, I strongly recommend you go for the dead tree version as opposed to picking up the PDF, which slowly drive through RPG is going through and getting better copies and coming up with better scans for that. But still, there's uh, you're dealing with a scan copy and that will only get... So good. Yeah, the uh, first edition core book uh, disappeared from Drive Through RPG, but I'm I'm hoping they'll bring that back and uh, correct that. Uh, I think it's just something temporary, but a little disappointed to see that this week. But uh, yeah, moving on to uh, the book as a whole, um, I I just think it's funny that the Order of Hermes is the older tradition that is older than Mage the Ascension, because the Order of Hermes started in Ars Magica first edition in 1987, and uh, I had read that the uh, the team of people that put together the uh, first edition core book they actually took the magic system from the Ars Magica game. And they said, well, well, what if we modernize this? What if we put this, you know, filter this through more modern thinking? What would we come up with? And and that was their first step towards making the nine sphere, uh, you know, five level magic system that we have for mage. And so uh, I, I thought that was, that was pretty cool to see. Yeah. Uh, one, one uh, problem I have with this book, only Chantry we hear mentioned is Doisetep. <laughs> It's like, here is the book where we focus on the Order of Hermes, who has founded you know, so many chantries. I mean, Doisetep is not the only one, but it's the only one we hear about. Yeah, it's like, we, oh, come on. Yeah, we get a few throwaway ones to be like, oh, yeah, the, the ruby children in House Thig are located here, the diamond children. But yeah, it's, it's less than a sentence. And I, I think it's interesting that you bring up the Ars Magica system being the predecessor. Uh, Ars Magica was written by Mark Rainhagen and John Tweet, who formed the company Lion Rampart that eventually merged with White Wolf Magazine to form White Wolf Game Studios. They then ran with it for a bit until they sold the license to Ars Magica, to Wizards of the Coast, who kind of dropped it. They did this other game, uh, Magic the Gathering. I wonder if that ever went anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> they, they're probably making most of their money from the fact that they license at now Ars Magica to Atlas Games, where it's now, and I think it's fifth edition or something like that. I have, yeah, I've, I've, I've got the, the fifth edition. They, they've done a pretty nice job with it. They're, they're serious about their game. They've got a good number of supplements out for it, too. So Atlas Games is, is trying to run with the ball. 
And it makes it very hard to search for books titled Order of Hermes, though, as, as, as there's like seven different things that you can find depending on the edition. Overall, I liked that they kept with the Order of Hermes is arrogant, but with good reason. There's often the phrase, is it arrogance to point out that you're the best at something if you can prove that you are? I'm not saying the Order of Hermes is necessarily the best, but they can back their bolstering. And it takes a while for them to be properly humbled. And that is not something that we get really until the revised era. Sometimes in this book, it is a little over the top, but at least it's them making fun of themselves, which is to me better than in other books where they're like, order Hermes assholes. And you're like, well, that was, that was kind of on the nose. The, the other thing that occurred to me reading through is they talk about the influences they draw from. I would have liked a little more information on that. They kind of talk about how the Order of Hermes put together these different thoughts and found the the true truth in each of them. This is a case where it's very hard to draw the tradition back to the foundational beliefs it came from without being just like invoking Aliester Crowley or something like that. I would have liked a little more information on where the magical theories came from so that if I as a person wanted to do more research, I could do that. It, we get a few things in the suggestion reading, but that makes it kind of hard to separate things that were popular in the Victorian repopularization of Egyptian or Persian belief from maybe what scholars of those things might say. So it makes the Order of Hermes sound a little more made up, I guess, than maybe it should be. But then again, I'm not familiar with any of the, the foundational beliefs that they, are, that they are stealing from. And there's also the question of appropriation. Like there's a lot of different beliefs and ideas that the Order of Hermes has taken and made its own without kind of giving credit from where they got it from. And uh, that is something that would be useful, partially to a storyteller so that they could do more research and two, to be more honest. That way a player playing it could appropriately be like, oh, my characters are hermetic. This is the culture they draw from. This is the the lay belief they came from that they saw being inflected in the Order of Hermes that they wanted to, to pursue magically. It makes it harder for me to draw that line through. Yeah, um, let's see. Uh, some things that uh, occurred to me. Uh, I, I liked the idea of the Egyptian influence. Um, uh, sometimes I talk to World of Darkness fans who are, who are, you know, they really like their crossovers and they want to look for those connections between disparate groups so they can play with those. And with the Order of Hermes, uh, not just with House Shea, but just the Order of Hermes as a whole and their influence from ancient Egyptian magic, it, it's easier to draw lines with the uh, Mokole from uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse, which are like the, the were crocodiles and the were reptiles. Uh, they have a strong Egyptian element to them. There is a, a tribe of the Guru called the Silent Striders, and they talk about their connection to you know, ancient Egypt. And also, of course, the mummies, uh, you know, Terry and I are both big fans of mummies and what we can do with them in the world of darkness. And it, I just see so many reasons for mummies and Order of Hermes characters to to meet and find common ground and, and even work together. So the Egyptian influence, uh, a lot can be made of uh, from there. Um, also, ever since the, uh, the early mage books, I've been reading about how the... Uh, Order of Hermes is very serious about uh, the war with the technocracy. They're they're really hard hitting, and they send out a lot of uh, powerful mages to to really try to take the fight to the technocracy. And, and this book helped me to see how, because of you know um, their their theories and their beliefs, and especially their history, the Order of Hermes has you know real strong reasons to carry this grudge for so many centuries against the technocracy. It, it really clicked for me. I, I can see how they can feel so strongly about it, and why the technocracy, when they're looking at the 
council of nine, they would pay special attention to the hermetics. It's like these guys, we got to keep our eye on because we know what they've done in the past. We know what they're capable of and we know what they've, what they've got to, to call upon uh, if they need to. So I like seeing that. Uh, first and second editions both recognize Order of Hermes as being very powerful. This book notes there are more masters in the order than in any other single tradition. Uh, the order has the most powerful chantry. Porthos is the most powerful known living mage. Uh, some hermetics would say this is proof their magic is superior. Uh, as a mage storyteller, I would say there are two reasons for this. The Order of Hermes has developed a strong work ethic and they record their accomplishments for their fellows to use. Hermetics are expected to show proof their they're advancing their studies, have to produce something that others can use. They value their libraries and wonders and guard them well over long periods of time. If you can hold to these values over the years, your mage faction will build up power. That's my approach to how they got to be so powerful. The arrogance of the Order of Hermes is something that Terry and I have both noticed together as, as we've walked through the mage books. I think it's handled better in this book. I mean, I, I think that sometimes the the writing here is, is given to hyperbole, which is is not my favorite, but it does handle it better in this book. There are a number of uh, mage books that came before this where, you know, like Terry said earlier in this episode, they just say, oh, the order of the hermetics, what a bunch of jerks. And then they kind of, kind of move on. It's like a, like a sniping attack or something. And uh, I, I remember in the back of Hidden Lore, it, it makes mention that the Verbena and the Order of Hermes are two groups that um, are... They have a culture and a reputation for being arrogant. It's like, well, okay, I, I guess I can see this. But with the Verbena, it's only mentioned there and never again. And we get so many examples of um, uh, Verbena characters in the books that are, you know, even-tempered, open-minded, nice sorts of people. But with Hermetics, they, they just can't catch a break. There are so many Hermetic characters that are just so awful. And I, I think that there were too many writers that went too far. And they were doing it for so long that I have met a lot of Mage fans who like like really take it to heart that oh the hermetics they're really awful people they're they're just really rude nasty heartless guys and I would never want to sit next to one on a bus and um, one idea that was floated around that was kind of interesting in the mid 90s was a couple of people were saying that they had 13 character types that show up in every world of darkness game and one was the prideful schemer Vampire the Masquerade had the Tremere, Werewolf, uh, the Apocalypse had the Shadow Lords, Changeling had the She, and Mage, when it first came out, it, it didn't really have a tradition that fit the bill. And so it seems like by the time we get around to Book of Chantries, that job gets assigned to the Order of Hermes, and they suddenly have to fill that role. And so that's just speculation, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was some truth to it. I, I think a lot of the the grand conspiracies that every game has has a certain thing kind of fall flat eventually. I have no great love or hatred for the Order of Hermes. I think they're interesting and they're rich and it is interesting to see the direction they came from. And, and to me, they play a vital role in pointing out that each tradition kind of had a time when it was the top dog and everyone is trying to go back to that in some way shape or form so you you can kind of go backwards in time and it was like the the virtual adepts thought they were going to be the next thing and that didn't prove to be it and before them it was the sons of ether and during the middle ages it may have been the order of hermes and it just seems like the order of hermes held on to that more and uh, it has fueled them through great accomplishment but at the at the cost of other people looking at them and being like 
jerks. But at the same time, it's one of those things where uh, one of my favorite characters in Mage is Sister Bernadette. And she spoke in song the whole time because that was her paradigm. And if you are a hermetic and you believe that that challenge and rigor is how you advance and you've done your homework and someone else hasn't, you want to get full credit compared to all the other students in the class. So yeah. I fully I fully get where they're coming from. Yeah. Well, there's uh, much talk of scheming politics within the order. I think this uh, is a bit overemphasized in the first, at least the first few editions of Mage, but uh, I tend to tone this down in my chronicles. Uh, politics has been called uh, seizing power without risk or merit, uh, a common quote I see, but uh, I can't see how this would work in the order of Hermes. Hermetics are kept busy by their superiors in order to in in order to get people's attention in the order of Hermes, you have to display magical power and knowledge. Money and social skills won't impress hermetics. They listen to accomplished mages. Even older accomplished mages have to keep up with their peers. So too much under the table deals and backstabbing would make them vulnerable in the ascension war. So I that that's my thinking for why I kind of turn the knob down a bit on the internal politics and, and, and backstabbing. But I guess it's it's just so dramatic and so interesting for a lot of uh, players that it's probably a lot of fun to jump into that. Yeah, I was never really big on the politicking just because I didn't think there were good systems for it. Whenever I pick up a new game nowadays, I want there to be traditional combat where with knives and guns and sticks and so on. I want there to be an investigation system where this is how we find clues and this is how we solve mysteries. And finally, I want there to be some sort of social intrigue system. And it could be a political system. It could be social combat. It could be any number of other ways. And World of Darkness doesn't really have that. Like, you can always roll wits plus subterfuge and so on. But it's not quite as fully developed. So I never I never really did the political games for that reason. I just don't mm-hmm. think the system lends itself to it. But I think that's most of what I have to say about the Order of Hermes. Do you, yeah. uh, do you have anything well, else? Well, I wanted to, I wanted to uh, explain the difference between uh, Hermetics and, and Primal Mages. Uh, traditions like the Dream Speakers, Cult of Ecstasy, Urbana, and Euthanatos are described in uh, mage books as being the Primal Mages, a name they often give them. Uh, primal Mages seek their proper place in the universe. They believe they have an obligation to the forces of nature or the gods to fulfill their destined role. Hermetics take a view that some would call more modern or perhaps even uh, more Western. Hermetics believe a mage should learn about the universe so he can carve out a destiny of his own choosing and hold the power to keep others from pushing him off his path. The primal thinkers uh, would call this ungrateful pride, but more modern thinkers would call this hopeful. The hermetic would say it's better to be called arrogant than to submit to the yoke of blind natural forces or the will of ancient spirits that hold little love for humans. The strength of will to stand up to elemental forces, umbrood and gods, and say, no, I'm not bending the knee, but you will do something for me, is a hope-filled proposition. Uh, however, in the development of that strong will, excessive pride is a danger. It's good for the mage books to note that, but I just wish they didn't take it as far as they often do. Yeah, there there isn't really a book that gives us that full context that you put out. And, it, and it's right, like the uh, primal worldview is one where there is harmony to the world, but if you're at the bottom of the totem pole, you're screwed. There is no notion of po- progress. The flip side of that is you, you have a more hermetic worldview where you can make it to the top because gosh darn you've earned it. It just so happens that you may inadvertently wind up stepping on people along the way and other people would say, hey, you're subverting the, the order of nature where the hermetic is saying, no, I'm establishing a new one based on deeds and what I've actually done as opposed to these ordained positions in the world that really came from nowhere. And and I think that is a good contrast to, to set up. And one of the most enjoyable things about mages when characters in character argue about paradigms. Yeah. And 
Uh, also, uh, in the published mage books, without meaning to, I think the writers have represented the dream speaker's view of middle umbra spirits a, a little too often. There are many passages that say, for example, mages shouldn't get too bossy with umbra or they'll come back with their buddies for revenge. However, I think the storyteller would be doing fine if they said the high umbra spirits are not so clannish and not so connected with human cultures. In my games, I have umbra with the intelligence of simple animals. I have others that are alien and distant. Bargaining or making friendships with these umbrood isn't feasible. The hermetic approach of commanding is the only way to really deal with them effectively. Uh, some umbrood would respect a being strong enough to put pressure on it. So I, I think the, the dream speaker approach of let's be nice and, and be friends is, is good in the middle umbra, but in the high umbra, I, I can see how it could be different. Especially if it is the realm of thought and the idea is that only the most rarefied of thoughts and belief get to truly manifest in the high umbra. So anyone who didn't have the willpower and clarity to manifest there probably doesn't belong and you're not going to you're not going to friendship your way to the epiphanies. You're going to show that you know what you're doing and that that is going to ipso facto be somewhat forceful as it needs to be to work. So, yeah, I like that. The uh, Anders Mage Page 2.0 has some great material for Order of Hermes. Uh, Anders Sonberg, when he was writing back in the mid-90s, he really liked the Order of Hermes. He, he thought that he uh, understood them better than others, and he put out some really great material for them. Uh, also, uh, if you look in the Disparates page, he's got a section uh, he wrote on alchemists, which really helped me to understand how to portray alchemy better as a storyteller. I mean, it, it talks about how in the Middle Ages there were people who really believed that lead was under a natural process already turning it into gold, just that it took a really, really long time. They had this philosophy that all things are naturally leaning towards their higher form, and alchemy just sped up the process. And it goes into detail about uh, similar ideas. There is a book put out in 1994 written by Jonathan Tweed of Ars Magica fame. It's called Houses of Hermes, and it's put up by Wizards of the Coast. It's for the fourth edition of Ars Magica. And I didn't play that that edition of the game, but book is just a winner. Uh, it's uh, roughly 150 pages. It has a chapter for each of the houses of Hermes in, in Ars Magica. It goes into detail about uh, what kind of mages are in there, what they like to do, how they solve their problems. And it, it gave me um, all kinds of, of great ideas for portraying the older, more traditional mindset of the Order of Hermes when players come into contact with it. Uh, for example, in the Middle Ages in Europe, they really thought that if a master wanted to kill his apprentice, no harm, no foul, because the apprentice put his life in the master's hands. And if the master chooses to do that, the, the Code of Hermes back in the Middle Ages said, yeah, that, that is actually okay. We're okay with that. Now, of course, the Order of Hermes is going to be a little different in the 21st century, but it, it was just so interesting to see where the Order came from. And that book is, is a great window into it. So yeah, that wraps up uh, the ideas that I had. I was going to close out with a few adventure ideas, and then I think we will have an episode of Tomes of Magic. These adventure ideas, I've got three of them. Number one, House Titleist has a plan to retake the Hermetic College Chantry on Mus, the hidden moon of Mercury, and Doisetep supports it. The players are recruited to prepare the staging area near Mercury. A trap is sprung, and the players are shunted to Mus instantly. But instead of being surrounded by Nefandi, they find themselves in a deserted fortress courtyard. They learn the Fallen's booby trap will go off when more than 10 people arrive. A message is burned into the stone in Arabic beside a corpse. Incomplete, it describes how to disarm the trap and mentions a book in the college's library that made the Fallen attack in the first place. Where did the Nefandi go? Can the players disarm the trap in time? And does the message's author have any allies hidden on Mus? 
Number two, in a hermetic chantry, the players meet an apprentice who is cursed to only see the dreams of others when she sleeps. She describes the dreams of Chiron Mustai, uh, Chiron Mustai, leader of House Janissary. Chiron knows the hermetic group waiting to move against him is coming for him, but he's desperate and wants to quickly kill the leader of House Bonasagas at Doisetep. Chiron fears the four-winged angel, which, by the way, is the avatar of one of the players. The players see a rare opportunity to gain favor with the leaders of the Order, but can they deal with the Thig mages supporting Chiron? Can the rumors be trusted that, say, Genevieve Bai, Janissary Master, is waiting for the right chance to turn on Chiron? A great chance to visit Doisetep and clean house. Number three, the players are attached to a chantry or mentor near Chicago. The technocracy is moving against their hermetic financial interests and nodes in the area. The players learn the Chicago Symposium is hoping the order will pull back and not notice their latest project. After capturing test data, the players see a new device is being perfected to strengthen the gauntlet, but buried in the data, numerical signs of potent hermetic formulas known only by those of rank seven in the order. A hermetic killed in a recent technocracy raid is really a turncoat advising the Void Engineers. Can the players find the turncoat? Is the turncoat planning a double cross against the Void Engineers? And that wraps it up for those adventure ideas. Hopefully they'll give you some ideas of your own that you can write in and tell us about. And I think that about wraps it up. Was there any other, uh, further thoughts, Terry? I had two things. One, Adam made mention to the Ars Magica supplements. Most of those available through DriveThruRPG. We're going to include those in the show notes. If you buy them through those links, again, we get a small amount and it helps us pay the bills. The second one is, it's not quite a quote. I usually try and find something that's funny, but there was this one little paragraph that I thought summarized a remarkable amount of the hermetic worldview. And it is to the hermetic viewpoint, which by the way is incorrect, that is said within it as a parenthetical, most other traditions practice mere Goetia. So they only have a secondary role in the great work. The great work being the hermetic term for building the city of Pymander where all human potential is ultimately realized. The hollow ones seem especially mired in Goetia. The other traditions who do not understand the pyramid of thought cannot see these larvae still need a few centuries to develop. Shots fired. Some traditions practice a rather limited form of theurgia, particularly the celestial chorus. The Akashic Brotherhood is a sad example of what happens when one approaches magia directly. It brings too much tranquility, and the great urge to change the world is lost. And I just love that. Not not the funny, pithy bit that I normally go to, but it has a lot of worldview summed up in like two sentences, which only after reading 30 other books and coming back to it did I really get it on the first path. And with yeah, that, that was well done. Yep. You want to take us out, Adam? Hey, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review on Mage the Podcast, it helps us become more visible in their searches. You can follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see the complete show notes. This episode is thanks to executive producers Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, and Michael Parker. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and until next time, Towards Ascension. Bye.